You'd open your Bible with me this morning then to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 1 and continue through verse 11. Philippians, chapter 2. We look at um, this text under the title, The Mind of Christmas. First, uh, we're going to read from Philippians 2. Let's begin reading at verse 1. Let's give our attention to God's Word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as I said, we'll be looking specifically at verses 5 through 7. Let's let's ask the Lord to bless us now as we come to his word. God in heaven, we um, we are the poor, the weak that could not save ourselves, and we desperately needed your rescue. Thank you that in Christ your rescue came in a way that we could never have imagined. I pray, Lord, you give us ears to hear today and to rejoice in the good news of the gospel, of your love for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that it would be real and transforming in our lives. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, uh, it's Christmas time. I, um, some of you, I'm thinking, particularly the boys and girls, can't wait until the day actually gets here. Uh, some of you, maybe the parents, can't wait until it's over. But uh, if I asked uh, you to just give me one word to describe your experience of the Christmas season, uh, well, I wonder what you would say. Uh, some of you might say uh, busy. Maybe you'd say exciting. Maybe you'd say exhausting. You might say expensive. Uh, but Paul has a, a word that he'd like to place in our mind uh, as we think about the Christmas season. Uh, and the word is Humility. Um, He wants us to think about uh, the reality of humility as Paul thinks about who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us and what that means then for us, those who belong to Christ. Uh, He highlights, Paul does here, the the incredible, amazing, uh, unthinkable condescension of Jesus Christ leaving the height of heaven to come to the the lowest, lowest depths that humans can experience. And, and Paul tells us that as we think about this, as we have this mind, there's going to be fruit that comes from it, and the fruit will be love and unity, genuine love and, and unity as we embrace humility. The, the text this morning is the classic text 
um, concerning, uh, get ready for it, the voluntary condescension of Christ. I know it sounds like a big sort of theological nerdy sort of phrase, uh, the, the voluntary condescension of, of Christ, I can see in your eyes, you're not really moved by it, it's, um, nobody's in tears, it's, um, it's a little bit bulky as a phrase, and yet it speaks of an, in just an amazing, astounding truth. Uh, let me just give you a word picture to sort of help us get a sense of what we're talking about. Michael Reagan, uh, in his book on his father, Ronald Reagan, talks about a time where uh, 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 Reagan was the governor of, of the state of California. And um, he had just gotten, it was a busy day, he had uh, made a speech that morning, he got back to his office, had just settled into his chair, and the door opens, and his aide says, uh, uh, Gov- Mr. Governor, there's a group of children here from a, um, a school of, of blind children, and they would like to come and, and visit you. Do you have a moment for them? And, and uh, he graciously says, okay. And so she ushers them all into the office there, and uh, he begins to, you know, make small talk with them. Huh? You know, great to, great to have you here, and do you have any questions, and, and what school are you from? And, but he, but he, he stops realizing that the reason they've come is to see the governor, but they're blind, and so they, they, um, there, there's, there's a barrier there for them to see the governor. And so, and so he gets up from his desk and walks around and literally gets down on his hands and knees and invites the children to come and see him by touching his face. And so the children gather around and here's the governor, the most important man in, in the state of California on his hands and knees in his office on a very busy day and these children are coming so that they can, they can see him. Well, that's a very small, black and white, grainy um, picture of voluntary condescension. But if you want to see the real thing, if you want to see it in right, all of its glorious technicolor and, and clarity, uh, you have to look to Christmas. You have to look to what Jesus Christ has done. It is the defining example of voluntary condescension. Uh, the, the, the magnificence of a, a thing that we call voluntary condescension is the, it's, it's revealed in the height from which you start and the depth to which you go. If I condescend um, to, uh, you know, do the dishes, and I'm just saying, some of you are frowning already, I, growing up as a kid, boys didn't do dishes, okay, we milked the cows, girls did dishes. <clears throat> so I have an excuse. But if I, uh, if I condescend to do the dishes, right, you would be right to say, well, that's not condescension. You're not lowering yourself to do the dishes. Who made them dirty in the first place? There's no distance. But if, if uh, in order for voluntary condescension to work, there has to be a height from which you begin and a genuine depth to which you go. Well, that's um, Jesus Christ began from the highest height possible, God, everlasting, eternal God, and descended to the lowest, lowest depth possible, at least for sentient human beings, where he not only becomes man, but, be, but takes on the sin of man and experiences the shame and humiliation and horror of divine condemnation because of man's sin. There's not a lower depth uh, that a man could go. And, and, and Paul wants us to see this voluntary condescension and then understand the significance of it, what difference it makes. And so let's just begin by, 
by looking uh, as Paul unfolds for us and uh, the, the condescension of Jesus Christ in all of its beauty. So first of all, he just reminds us of the height. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, and form of God doesn't mean he was kind of like God, but not quite. But Paul uses this word form several times in the, uh, the, the, the text here just to make the contrast. So he was in the form of God, really, truly God, and he took on the form of a servant, really, truly servant, being in the form of man, really, truly man. He, Paul begins by reminding us who Jesus is eternally uh, the everlasting God of all glory, the, the God who has no beginning. He, he never started. There was never a time when God was not. And there will never be a time when God is not. And he is the creator of all things, the unsupplied source of everything that is not God. Angels, demons, whatever. God creates, has created everything. And he is the acting character. Jesus is the acting character who has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. I think we tend to assume that uh, the Old Testament is a story about the activity of God the Father, and the New Testament is a story about the activity of Jesus. Well, that's not true. Uh, Jesus takes the Old Testament, we know in Luke 24, and he, and he explains how it is all about him. He's on every page. He's the acting character in the Old Testament as well. Jesus is not, right, in the Old Testament, sort of in the wings, waiting for his moment to come onto the stage. Jesus is the one who created the stage and who ordains all the events of the stage throughout human history and is the acting agent on the stage. So he's the one who created the world. Jesus is. He's the one who spoke and with his word created everything that is. Uh, he's the one who condemned the world with the flood in Noah's day. He's the one who called Abraham out of Ur and, and uh, brought him to the land of Canaan. He's the one who appeared to Abraham in his pre-incarnate form and told him about uh, he was going to have a son and made a covenant with him. Jesus is the one who judged Pharaoh and delivered his people out of Egypt. Uh, Jesus is the one who appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus is the one who um, Isaiah uh, saw in Isaiah chapter 6, the thrice holy God seated on his throne. Uh, Jesus is the son of man who Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is the one who spoke by the mouth of the prophets. All the uh, glorious things we read about God's activity in the Old Testament is uh, Jesus at work reigning in glory with the Father and the Spirit. So the wonder, you see, of incarnation is that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, really, truly, eternally God, he became man. The Word became flesh. And so we see this descent. And Paul um, sort of layers this descent uh, we can, we're we're going to look first at just the condescension of office and the condescension of being, the condescension of his humility and his, and his condemnation. <clears throat> Notice the descent. Uh, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Uh, I, I've called this the condescension of office. I didn't really know how else to name it. The, what Paul is getting at here is that Jesus being God has... If there's any privileges that belong to God, very near the top would be the privilege 
of being served, right? And we know that all the angels in heaven do exactly that. And that whatever the, the uh, disobedience of the devil and the demons, at, at the core of that disobedience would be a refusal in some way to serve and worship, the word's the same, <clears throat> the Lord, who is worthy to be worshiped and served. And so when we read that Jesus, in all of his divinity, became a servant it is, it is a, an upending of things, uh, of the way things ought to be. The one who was eternally in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not lay hold of the privilege that was rightfully his, gave away that privilege in a sense. He set aside that privilege. He didn't set aside his divine nature. The marvel of, of the incarnation isn't that God put aside his divine nature and as simply as man became a servant. The marvel is that he, maintaining his divine nature, became man and became a servant. As God, he became the servant. So Jesus enters this world, the second Adam, but in a, uh, in a way that's completely different from the first Adam. The first Adam is brought into a pristine, faultless creation. Everything is as it ought to be. And Adam is called into this pristine, faultless creation in order to rule, in order to exercise right, his rightful reign as the vice regent under God's authority to exercise that authority over this pristine, beautiful world. What a wonderful calling. But Adam and Eve... Desiring to grasp Godhead, that's exactly what the devil comes to them with. Wouldn't you like to be like God, knowing both good and evil? Lost their status because they wanted, they're grasping for what was not theirs. Jesus, on the other hand, sets aside what is rightfully his being God, enters not a pristine world, but a world that has utterly fallen, and he enters that world in order to serve it, even to death on the cross. He becomes a nobody, the living God. Another word for nobody is servant, in, particularly in the world of that day, where, where there is clearly defined categories of class, and servants are on the bottom rung. In a world where might, right, Roman might sort of defines the way things ought to be, Jesus is a Utterly insignificant servant. But what a servant. What a magnificent servant he was. Think of, of how he served. He served health to lepers. People who, no one healed lepers. It, it wasn't possible. And yet Jesus did. He served life to dead people. He served liberating truth to demon-possessed people. Loving forgiveness to prostitutes and, and tax collectors. In every situation you find Jesus in the Gospels, you find him serving and, he, and he's doing this in a world where every single solitary person he meets is serving himself. Everyone is, whether they realize it or not. And, and even, even godly people, right, are still battling that, that battle with, with the flesh and with, and with self. And surrounded by, uh, by all these people serving themselves, Jesus not once served himself. 
The devil tempted him to, right? When he was hungry, uh, 40 days without food and water in the wilderness, and, and the devil says, well, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Serve yourself. And Jesus refused to. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is, is facing the horror of what is to come in the judgment of the cross, um, he's tempted. there's a temptation there to serve himself. But Jesus says, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And if it, doesn't, if it isn't your will, not your will, but, my, but not my will, but your will be done. And so you see the incredible condescension of Jesus Christ, very God of very God, who became man in order to serve men. We have the condescension of, of being, in a sense, where he, where he becomes man. Now that's, well, we're, we're people. That doesn't seem that strange to us. Uh, but there is a thing called the creator-creature distinction. Uh, these, these are things that are in, utterly unlike one another. God is as the creator, uh, everything else as creation, man as creature. Jesus enters into it in the most amazing way, in, in every way. See, the, the, uh, the Greek and Roman myths, religious myths, would have gods entering the world, but but never to actually become part of it. They would just show up kind of looking like it. Jesus enters the womb of a virgin named Mary. And in the darkness of that secret place, he's knit together just like every human being is knit together. And he's born like every other human being to this young virgin in a um, little town, Bethlehem, in in a place where they keep the animals in every way, Jesus enters into our humanity, and uh, except without sin, of course. But, but the condescension of this, remember who he is as God. He's eternally self-sufficient, needs nothing. It's impossible for God to be in need. Eternally omnipotent, all power. Um, omnipresent everywhere, omniscient, all-knowing. And we're made out of dust. And we're... We're dependent. We're defined by dependency. Even when we're big, we need water. We need air. We need food. We are incredibly limited in terms of power and knowledge and space. To be God is to know no limitations. To be man is to be defined by limitations. C.S. Lewis says, if you want to get some idea of what it meant for Jesus to become a man, imagine yourself agreeing to become a slug. And that's just a small little taste of it, right? A little picture of it. And the, and, the, and the wonderful thing is that Jesus didn't just sort of dive in and dive out. He didn't become man for 33 years. He became man forever. He will never stop being man. He entered our humanity and embraced that reality forever. When you see Jesus on that last day, you're going to see a man. It's incredible. And the humility then that Jesus embraced as he became man and took on the form of a servant, verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. I read recently that uh, humility comes from humiliation. Uh, And there's some truth to that, that the only way we really become humbled is, is through some humiliating experience where we realize we're not quite all that we thought we were, uh, where some weakness gets exposed, some perversion gets exposed, some, some uh, brokenness, whatever. Humility generally comes from humiliation. 
It didn't come that way for Jesus. He chose it. The living God humbled himself. He embraced humility and submitted himself. Think of Jesus, the son of God, the perfect child, submitting to Mary and Joseph, sinful parents. We don't know, you know, Jesus' cognitive uh, you know, abilities or whatever as a child. He was a child. He was a real child. Um, but what, what, is it, what a thing it would be to, to be a perfect child living with sinful parents. Who Now, some of you children think, yeah, I can totally relate to that. <clears throat> it's different, trust me. Um, Jesus submits to them. He submits to the law of God that, that he wrote. It's his law. But he places himself not under the obligation to keep the law, but the penalty of the law. He submits himself completely to the will of his Father every moment of every second of every day. And so when Jesus, Paul says, he he submitted himself and humbled himself even to death, Paul wants us to realize that Jesus did not die for the same reason we die. Our death is the result, at least in part, of Adam's disobedience. Jesus' death is the result of his obedience. He he, he died because he chose to die in obedience to the Father. And Paul wants us to recognize the awful, shameful, humiliating, devastating experience of that death because he adds here, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. Death on, the, on a cross uh, is, was recognized as, as the worst possible death. It's the death of the damned. It's the death of a, a condemned person who is not wanted by earth and not wanted by heaven and hangs there in between the two. Scorned, reviled, shamed. That's the death Paul wants us to see, that Jesus humbly embraced, willingly chose as God. As God. He joined us, you see, in our sin, in our shame. C.J. Dindalk, a pastor up in Sparta, many of you know him. Remember him telling the story once about being asked, uh, someone from uh, the church said, uh, you know, would you, would you come with me? I, my son is being sentenced today. And so he didn't really know what was going on, but he and Linda... Um, Agreed, and they and they drove to the courthouse and met the mother there. A brother was there as well, and they sat in the in the audience in the in the audience there, whatever, the crowd. And um, the time comes for the man to be sentenced. He's brought in, and the judge starts reading the list of what this guy had done, and it was unbelievable. It was awful. It was perverse. It was just wicked and vile. And people in the courtroom started turning to look back at. C.J. and Linda, seated with the mother and the brother, and C.J. said, I realized they thought I was part of the family. And, and what I wanted to do was get down on my hands and knees and crawl out of the courtroom. I did not want in any way to be identified with that vile, wicked, perverse man standing there in front of the judge. But then he says, think about what, what Jesus did. Now, Jesus wasn't just associated with us in some tangent tangential way, Jesus went to the front of the courtroom, and he took our sin, and he took our guilt and our shame, our perversion, our, all the vileness of our sin before a holy God, 
not just associating, you see, with vile sinners, but becoming our sin. He took it on himself, and not in some secret corner of the universe, but before the watching world, before the host of heaven, before the demons of hell, before the, the, the thrice holiness of, of God, right? Jesus embraced this and took it to himself. He, the, the greatest possible disgrace that, that, that a human being can experience. Jesus did that on purpose, intentionally. Despised by people, cursed by God, his body broken, his soul forsaken, his, his humiliation is absolute. You cannot go lower than Jesus win. And the, the question then, then we have to ask is why? Why would God, eternal, everlasting God, why would he do that? Because he does not need to except for love. That's the only reason. Except that in, the, in, in eternity past, God the Father and God the Son determined to save sinners in this way and to make rebels into children, to make dirty, perverse, vile people into a beautiful bride for Jesus Christ for all eternity. That's why he did it. Because he loved his Father and he loved his own. He loved all those the Father had given to him. And this was the only way that your sin could be forgiven. It's the only way that, that I could be pardoned. It's the only way that we could be rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. And so that's the reality that Paul's talking about here in Philippians chapter 2. And, and, he, and he does it for a reason. He says to you and to me, he says, Have this mind in you which is yours in Christ. See, Christmas is supposed to have ramifications. Uh, the, the reality of what Christ has accomplished and has done for us, being God and, and all that we've just talked about, that, that's supposed to smash into our life in a way that it makes a difference. It, it breaks through strongholds and, 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 and bondages and, and sets us free to, to live in a, in a radically different way and to grow into something that the world never sees on its own. People who intentionally humble themselves in order to serve other people who the world would think are less than them. People who happily die to self and suffer for love's sake for one another. People who do it on purpose, not accidentally. People who, who can even rejoice in it as Jesus rejoiced even as he suffered. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind, doing nothing with selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's a, that's a, that's a big task. A lot easier said than done. Right? So, someone has said to live above with saints we love, that will be grace and glory, but to live below with saints we know, that's another story. And it is. Can you imagine what your family would look like if people actually did this, if if everyone had the same mind, everyone agreed, and the same love, everyone was motivated by a common love for the Lord and a love for one another, and everyone was in full accord, everybody on the same page, all together pursuing the same thing, that would be heaven, and it would be, it will be, and yet it's not just this ideal that Paul says, gosh, wouldn't that be nice, it's a, it's, it's a reality, Paul says, that we get to walk into 
Because this mind is ours. Have this mind which is yours in Jesus Christ because of what Jesus Christ has intended. He's not calling us to just grit our teeth and try to be nicer people. He's calling us to, to, to look at Jesus and to, and to remember what Christ has accomplished. Remember it as though it happened this morning. Because, because nothing has diminished from the significance of all that Christ has accomplished in the last 2,000 years. It's just as magnificent and real and glorious and, and relevant today as it was then. And so he's laid before us this beautiful reminder, this picture of the voluntary condescension of Jesus Christ, living God, becoming scorn and shame for you and for me. And then he says, this is, this is what we get to do. How? Well, do you have any encouragement in Christ? Do you have any encouragement from the knowledge that Jesus did this for you and that you've been united to him and everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you? Doesn't that change the way you think about the, the tiff you've got going on with someone over here? Doesn't that maybe change the way you think about what's your, what your rights are? Maybe even about what you need? Any, any encouragement from being united to Jesus Christ? Are, are you comforted by his love? Have you, have you stopped to think what an amazing thing it is to be loved by God? To be loved this way? Any participation in his spirit is the Holy Spirit within you? Well, then you have resources. Resources that are truly supernatural. You see, friends, the, the secret of sanctification, of being these, these sorts of people, is an experience of the reality of all the love of God for us in Jesus Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, and, and if we don't know that, we, we at least should know that that is what, it, what being a Christian means, and that's where the power happens. Believing that Jesus existed and that Jesus exists today, is, there's no power in that faith. The devil has the same faith. The, the power comes from encouragement in Christ and comfort from the love of Christ and participation in the spirit of Christ. That's where the power comes, and that power is ours. If we belong to Jesus in true living faith. There's not like two different tiers of Christians. Paul calls all of us to believe in Jesus in this way. To experience this truth. As we fix our mind on Jesus. You see, because as we remember all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We don't have anything to be afraid of. We have nothing to fear. And we're actually free to die to ourselves and, 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 and humbly love other people, even when it hurts. I like what John MacArthur says here. He says, how far does humility go? Well, Jesus went to the cross for sinners who didn't deserve it, who didn't even want it. Sometimes humility is painful, and sometimes it's unfair, and sometimes it's misunderstood. And usually it's very costly. But friends, the good news is it's what we get to do. In the love of God and the magnificent humility of Jesus Christ for us, it's what we get to do. We get to die to self, and we get to embrace this magnificent love. We get to, we get to follow this beautiful Savior. We get to happily die to ourselves and humble ourselves and love other people and serve other people even when they're not interested, even when they don't want it, even when it's not fair, even when it's really costly. Friends, Jesus did not voluntarily condescend so we could just buy presents for each other. 
He died so we could gladly, willingly serve and love each other. It's what we get to do. And as the church does that, you see, we, we, we make it possible for people to realize the beauty of Jesus. Just, just as Governor Reagan got on his hands and knees so people could, could touch his face and see him that way, as we humble ourselves and serve one another, we make it possible for a world that's blinded by sin to see something about the, the truth and the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ that could, that could cause us to live this way. Isn't that what you want to do in your family? Isn't that what you want to do in your life? Isn't that what we want to do as a church? What's that going to look like in your life this week? Because that's where it needs to go. Think about it. Pray about it. The Lord will help you. Amen. Well, God in heaven, I thank you for the glory of Jesus. I thank you for the incredible condescension of Christ who on purpose gave up all that he gave up in order to rescue us, knowing exactly who we were, but because of love. Oh, Lord, um, we, can't, we can't even really grasp the greatness of your love for us, which is why Paul prays that you would give us by your spirit the power to understand the height and length and depth and breadth of the love of God for us in Christ. Lord, I, I pray that you would inscribe this word in our heart and that we would see the, the, the beauty of Jesus in a fresh way. And that scene, Lord, we'd be transformed. As we behold his glory, we are being transformed into his likeness. And that, Lord, there would be a peace in our troubled hearts. And, Lord, where there was contention, there would be calm. Uh, we have nothing to lose. We have nothing to fear. Uh, we can serve gladly recognizing this is our calling and this is, in some way, this is how we, we thank and magnify Jesus. I pray, Lord, that our holiday season would be, um, would be impacted, changed by this truth, how we live together as husbands and wives and boys and girls, how we engage our family uh, members and, and difficult people at work, Lord, I, I pray that you would glorify your name by making us these people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing a hymn again, just celebrating the condescension of the Lord Jesus for us. What child is this who laid to rest? This is Christ the King. Let's stand together and worship.